Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. When strange signs appeared in the sky over Quebec in 1660, the French settlers started to worry about evil forces in their midst. Then a teenage servant called Barbe Allais started to act as if she were possessed by demons. She accused a local miller of bewitching her, and the following year he was imprisoned and executed. Though whether on these charges or others is hard to say. Priests and nuns tried to drive the demons away, but in the end it was something else that worked. The possession of Barbe Allais in early Canada, then called New France, is an anomaly. Although witchcraft and demonology were common in Europe and 30 years later would manifest in Massachusetts, there is an absence of such accusations in New France. It is the dog that didn't bark in the night. So this case promises to shed light on a fascinating part of early colonial North America, religious beliefs, social history, and the precarity of European settlers in a small town on the St. Lawrence River. I'm delighted that today's podcast is a suggestion by a listener. Mike Old tells me that Barbe Allais, the possessed servant girl, was his eight times great-grandmother. And what luck that a fine scholar has just published a book on Allais' case. My guest today is Dr. Mary Cowan, who is an associate professor at the University of Toronto, Mississauga. She's written about 12th century Glasgow, the court of King James IV of Scotland, and most recently, in this book published in 2022, about bewitchment in New France. The book, which is a wonderful, scholarly, and eminently readable microhistory, is called The Possession of Barbe Allais, Diabolical Arts and Daily Life in Early Canada. Dr. Cowan, thank you so very much for coming on Not Just the Tudors. It's a wonderful opportunity to talk to you about your new book. And I love the fact that this is a suggestion from a listener. And it's also a brilliant story. So thank you so much. Thank you so much. I am really delighted to be here. Now, we're thinking about 17th century Canada before it's called Canada. It's actually New France we're thinking about particularly. You start your story with a journey that could be treacherous, the voyage across the Atlantic to New France. I was amazed at how startlingly small the numbers are, especially if you compare to migration to New England and Virginia in the same period. But I suppose given the enormity of the risk, the question is actually why anyone embarked on the trip at all, isn't it? Why did people set out to New France? People set out to New France for a variety of different reasons. Back in the 16th century and the early 17th century, the travelers from France were looking for a route to Asia and some precious metals. They were also seeking more general information about who and what was in northern North America so that they would know how to make this area and its people French. By the mid-17th century, the French had learned that Asia was not actually very easy to reach from eastern North America, and they had largely given up on finding precious metals. But the crown in France was still interested in extending a French empire in the Americas, and the church in France was still hoping to convert indigenous people to Catholicism. Both of those goals required people to migrate to New France. So why did these people migrate, given how difficult it was, as you say? Some came to work for a few years, make some money, and then return to France. Others came to stay, but as you suggested, not so many of them as the French crown would have liked. New France was not an appealing destination for most people in France. They thought it was very cold, which it certainly can be. They thought it was isolated from France for much of the year which was true, and they thought it was a dangerous place to live because of attacks by hostile forces. There was one letter writer 
who described Canada's reputation in France by saying that if you hear about Canada at all in France, you imagine a certain horrible and uncultivated wilderness. Not an appealing prospect to most people, but some did come. Missionaries saw opportunities in a horrible and uncultivated wilderness. They saw this as the possibility for living an ascetic, challenging life. And they believed that they could convert people while presuming that if they died in the attempt, at least they would be martyrs. Townspeople and farmers sometimes came too. They hoped that New France would in time become more like France, that life here would become easier. And in the meantime, they hoped they would have enough to eat thanks to the fertile soils and the abundant game. They hoped they would stay warm thanks to the large amount of firewood available. And they thought they might have a bit of a reprieve on this side of the Atlantic from the strict social code of Ancien Régime France. That's really interesting. Let's come back to that. I'd like for us to meet fairly quickly our central character in this story, who is a young woman, Barbe Allais. Who was she? She was a French person who crossed the Atlantic to North America in 1659. She had been born in a small town in France, about 85 kilometers southwest of Paris. And at about the age of 13, she embarked with her mother and her father and two sisters on board a ship called the Sacrifice of Abraham. Their voyage across the Atlantic probably took about two months, and she landed at the town of Quebec on the 16th of June, 1659. So the story is taking place in New France soon before it becomes a royal colony. Can you tell me a bit about the area, really? And obviously this has been a place of human habitation for a long time. There are indigenous peoples living there whom the French encountered. Maybe you could tell me a bit about them and the sort of place that Barb Halle would have found when she arrived in the new city of Quebec. Right. So from the boat, she would have seen Quebec as a small town. It was a French settlement of maybe 700 people right on the bank of the St. Lawrence River. And as you say, people had been living in this area for thousands of years. But the town of Quebec as a French settlement had only been founded about 50 years prior to Barb's arrival. Its location was strategic for the French. They'd built their town here for good reasons. First of all, the site was excellent for controlling trade. Anyone passing from the Atlantic Ocean to the interior continent on the St. Lawrence River had to pass by this very spot, which was exactly where the river narrows. The town was also defensible. Here, rising above the shore of the river was a cliff about 40 meters high. And that presented a formidable obstacle to attack, also a convenient place to put cannon to defend the river at this spot. The town itself, although small, had two main sections. It had an upper town and a lower town. The upper town was on top of the cliff, and it was where most of the largest, most prestigious buildings were located. Here, she would have seen the College of the Jesuits, a convent of Ursuline nuns, a hospital, and the residence of the governor. The lower town, right at the shore of the river, was the center for commercial activity. So this town may have been small, especially for someone who had known Paris, but it was connected to this much vaster place in the imagination of the French king, this place called New France. The French only had effective control over a small territory in the land claimed by the king, especially the settlements on the St. Lawrence River. And that was what the French meant when they used the word Canada in the 17th century. They meant French settlements on the St. Lawrence. And the French king wasn't claiming a great deal of territory beyond that yet, but he was looking to expand. As you pointed out, most of the people living in the area that the French king called New France were not French. They were indigenous peoples. And there were several indigenous peoples quite well known to the French by this time. The nations living closest to Quebec and allied to the French included the Innu, called the Montagnier by the French, the Algonquin, and the Wendat, called Huron by the French. These were allies to the French, but the French had enemies too. A little farther away, to the south of the Great Lakes and the St. Lawrence, was the Haudenosaunee Confederacy, called the Iroquois by the French. These nations were regularly at war with the French and also 
at war with the allies of the French. I'm struck by quite how small Quebec was. I mean, I don't know the population of Paris in 1650, but I know that a century earlier it had been about 250,000. <laughs> so a town of 700 people is very, very small, and it does suggest this massive gap between the aspirations of the French crown and the reality on the ground. Exactly. French colonial leaders wanted to create a new France, a better France in North America. And at first, they thought French people would enthusiastically join in their efforts. They also presumed, rather arrogantly, that indigenous people would happily, even gratefully, accept the offer to convert to Catholicism and become French. However, by the middle of the 17th century, it was becoming quite clear to any observant French settler that these earlier ideals were not being realized. There was a large gap between expectation and reality. Experiences of life in North America taught the settlers that they'd have to make compromises to French ideals if New France was going to survive. There's a wonderful practical gap that I found rather entertaining in your work, that colonists would desire houses made of stone and half timber because they were high status, but actually they were going to be much warmer in Canada if their houses were completely of wood because it would insulate them against the cold. And that gap between status and comfort is fascinating. Yep, they found that if they built houses of wood rather than stone and made sure that they built them with some kind of cellar or basement underneath to raise the houses above the level of the ground, they would in fact be much more comfortable. We have all sorts of charming accounts of French settlers in New France trying to make the case that winter wasn't really so bad if you were prepared for it. They said at least it was sunny and bright, and that to them was much more comfortable than the rainy winters of France, which for people wearing woolen clothes must indeed have been pretty uncomfortable. In Canada, there was bright sunlight, a lot of snow, and a seemingly endless supply of firewood to keep these wooden houses warm. There are also a number of other people who are central to the case. Could you introduce us at this stage to two men, François de Laval and Daniel Ville? François de Laval and Daniel Ville were two of the people on the same ship as Barbalet when she crossed from France to New France. We know a lot more about one of them than we do about the other. François de Laval was a bishop. His precise episcopal status was a bit confusing when he arrived. He came to New France to be a bishop in Canada, but he was not yet the bishop of Canada. He was a bishop, but he was the bishop of Petra, which was in Palestine. And his official title in New France was Vicar Apostolic. A bishop was responsible for the spiritual care of people within a diocese. And a vicar apostolic was responsible for the spiritual care of people in a region not yet organized into a diocese. New France was not yet organized into a diocese, so it did not have its own bishop. And therefore, Laval came over as a bishop, but also the vicar apostolic of Canada. This gave him an ill-defined role which seems to have been quite uncomfortable for him. He was a nobleman from France who expected to be treated as a bishop with all the deference due to a bishop, but the authority of his position as vicar apostolic was unclear. So he was an important nobleman and leader in the church. Okay, so I guess if you're coming from a society that's completely preoccupied by status, that lack of clarity is quite disturbing. Quite disturbing. And as we may see came to play a role in the development of this case of demonic possession. Daniel Vuille was a miller by trade, and he was a Protestant by faith, at least when he set out from France. Both these characteristics made him seem a bit suspicious to people around him. He wanted to marry Barbale, and he claimed she had been promised to him, but because he was a man of bad customs, no one listened. Then, according to one source, he grew so angry at the refusal of his offer of marriage that he turned to the tricks of his diabolical art in an attempt to corrupt and then marry Ale. So let's talk about Ale's possession by demons as it was understood at the time. What do we know about it? We have multiple reports of strange things happening around Ale. At first, the observers were not certain exactly what they were seeing. They were not 
yet sure that this was a possession, but they did quickly suspect some kind of demonic activity. They described demons and specters terrifying Allais, and the Bishop Laval sent priests to perform an exorcism of the place where she worked, but these efforts did not work, and the manifestations became even stranger. Phantoms were seen, a phantasmal drum and flute were heard, then stones detached themselves from a wall and flew about by themselves. All of this certainly looked like some kind of demonic infestation to observers who wrote the accounts. Then, Barbalet named the miller Daniel Vuille as the witch responsible for the infestation. And just to clarify, Barbalet at this point would have been, what, 16? Is that right? Well, one source says she's 16, but... I think more reliable sources give a younger age. Depending on which source we use, we come to an age of between 12 and 14. Okay, so we're talking a young teenage girl. Mm -hmm. So Danielle Wheel is the one named as the witch doing this bewitching, ensuring that she is being possessed by demons. Why does he fit the profile of a witch? When most people think of witches, they don't think of men. Can you explain most people don't think of men because most people accused and convicted of witchcraft in early modern Europe were women. There were, though, certain regions of France where men outnumbered women among the accused and the convicted. And Vuil fit the profile of a witch for several reasons. First, there was his religion. He had not been Catholic in France, as colonists in New France were supposed to be. He was a Calvinist, called a Huguenot by the French. He did officially convert to Catholicism, but this Protestant past seems to have left a mark of suspicion. And then there was his occupation. He was a miller, and millers in France were often associated with exploitation and dishonesty. They worked in isolation in a noisy mill, often a bit apart from people's settlements. And they were sometimes thought to, to cheat the people who brought the grains to be ground. So he's a suspiciously Protestant Miller, reputed to be a man of bad customs, then Ballet names him as a witch. And moreover, she supplies a motivation that matched people's expectations for why witches launched attacks. She said that he had wanted to marry her and was refused and then used his witchcraft to launch the demons. This matched what witches were thought to do back in France, which was to be spiteful, ill-willed people motivated especially by envy, who, if they couldn't get what they wanted through normal, legitimate means, would turn to the secret dark arts of witchcraft. Here was someone denied his desire, and colonists believed that in revenge, he sent demons. It seems about time that we talk about the sort of sources that you were using for this, because you've done this brilliant piece of work in your book of stitching together the story from lots of different sources. And I was also surprised when I looked you up to discover that actually your previous work is on 12th century Glasgow and James the Fourth of Scotland. So you've kind of found your way into this story. And I wondered if the sources had led you there, really. They had. This was a new and unexpected direction of research, and it came upon me while I was on vacation. I was on a family vacation in Quebec City, and I had brought with me a collection of letters from a nun who had lived there in the 17th century, because apparently for my holiday reading material, I choose a lot of historically nerdy sources. And not everyone on my family vacation was quite as delighted by the selection of material as I was, but they tolerated my enthusiasm. And in one of the letters from this nun named Marie de l'Incarnation, she was writing to her son about a series of frightening signs that had been seen recently over Quebec. There was a comet, there were fiery shapes of a man and a canoe and a crown, then lamentable cries in the air. Marie de l'Incarnation thought that these apparitions were linked to the arrival of witches and magicians in the colony. And then she went on to explain that one of these witches and magicians was sending demons into the house of a girl whom he wanted to marry. The story went on from here for a bit in the letter, but I was already captivated. Or if you prefer the technical language of demonology, I was already obsessed by what I read. 
I wanted to know what happened to this tormented girl and the man suspected of bewitching her. And I started to wonder if there were other cases like this in New France. Then my thoughts started to venture into bigger questions of early modern history, what the colonists believed, how much of their worldview had they brought with them to North America, and in what ways did the realities of life in North America reshape their assumptions brought over from France. So when choosing my next research project, I decided to step away from medieval Scotland for a bit and immerse myself into this world of 17th century New France. I mean, it's a wonderful and fascinating decision, and I think we should do it more as historians, really. You had this letter from the nun. What else did you find when you started looking? Well, I found some more letters from the same nun, who, although she was cloistered, knew a lot about the goings-on in this colony. She told stories about who came and who went and what people ate and what the weather was like, all sorts of things. So I found a few more letters in her collection about this story. I found a biography of one of the nuns working at the hospital that talked about this case. I found some information in the chronicle of that hospital. There was information in the journal of the Jesuits. I came across an inventory of documents assembled by the bishop that touched upon this case and an account by a local laywoman of her efforts to deliver Alay from the possessing demon. So this was a collection of sources about the case directly. And then beyond these sources, I found a lot more that provided information on the historical context of this case. As a medievalist, I was quite delighted to find that 17th century New France has left us a really rich corpus of sources for understanding people's daily lives. So you talked about the idea of people's values that they were bringing from France with them. And one of those values absolutely is that witchcraft exists, that people could genuinely be possessed. And I don't want to detract at all from the likelihood that Alay thought herself to be possessed by demons. But you present with that in mind, nevertheless, the fascinating possibility that in some ways her manifestation of possession was a way of shielding herself from a marriage that she didn't want. Can you explain? Yes, I can. And I am very cautious about this because I think it is a possibility, but I'm reluctant to declare how likely I think the possibility was. Nonetheless, it is a possibility that this was a shield against marriage. The demographic situation in New France put a lot of pressure on young women to marry. French men outnumbered French women by a lot in the colony. Depending on how we counted it, there could have been as many as 12 marriageable French men for every marriageable French woman. In this situation, women had in some ways a lot of choice about whom to marry. However, aside from those who took oaths of chastity to join religious orders, women weren't really permitted the option of not marrying at all. Barbale, when she arrived, as we said, was between the ages of 12 and 14. And this put her at the very low edge of the range at which women first married in New France she would have been expected to choose a husband and marry quickly. We heard earlier that there had been a promise made that she would marry Vuil, and that's possible. She may have agreed to marry him. Her father may have promised her in marriage. We also know that before the wedding took place, she would have been fully within her rights to withdraw her consent. That was legal to do, and quite a lot of women did break a contract of marriage and then marry somebody else. What would have been difficult for Ale was to maintain a status of not marrying at all. She would have been expected to marry someone. And demonic possession would have shielded her for a while. According to the theories of early modern demonologists, a person possessed by a demon was not to blame for the possession. They were the victim. While possessed, that person was also not to blame for their behavior. A possessed person's speech and actions were directed not by themselves, but by the demon inhabiting their body. So while possessed, a person could break the normal rules of their society without being held accountable. Now, people back in early modern Europe were aware that some seeming possessions weren't truly possessions, that they could be the result of illness or even fraud. They were aware that discernment was a very difficult effort. And I don't think, therefore, we can know for sure whether Ale really thought herself possessed. 
But I do think the pressures and anxieties of her community led people to think she could be possessed. I'm struck also by the fact that this is a very young age to be marrying. People might think of this period and think that people regularly did get married at that age, but actually only really if you're noble or royal. Ordinary people were really marrying in France itself in their mid to late 20s. And so it would have been startlingly young for her to consider marriage, I would have thought, by comparison to the values and customs of the country she'd come from. Exactly. In France, she probably would not have expected to marry for at least another 10 years. But in New France, women married much younger. And if their husbands died, they remarried quickly. I'm Tristan Hughes, host of The Ancients from History Hit, where twice a week, every week, we delve into our ancient past. I'm joined by leading experts, academics and authors who share incredible stories from our distant history and shine a light on some of antiquity's great questions. Was the Oracle of Delphi really able to see into the future? What can be discovered from lost civilizations? And was King Arthur actually real? You can expect all of this and more from the ancients on History Hit wherever you get your podcasts. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. So let's have a think about context because you mentioned all the sources that have given you information about this. And I'm struck by the fact that this is a deliberately Catholic colony at exactly the sort of time that the Edict of Nantes has been revoked and Huguenots are being kept to certain areas in France. New France is not going to have any of that contagion. It's just going to be Catholic. That's right. New France is supposed to be a very Catholic place. Catholicism was built deeply into the ideals of the colony's original form. In 1627, the French king, Louis XIII, and Cardinal Richelieu wrote that New France would bring people to the knowledge of the true God. Not long after, a Jesuit missionary wrote that if those holding the reins of government were zealous for the glory of God, there would be established in New France a new Jerusalem composed of citizens destined for heaven. Now, you might expect kings and missionaries to write things like this from 17th century France, but it was not only they who thought New France should be deliberately Catholic. A lawyer wrote that there are two principal causes which, as a rule, excite kings to make conquests, zeal for the glory of God and desire to increase their own possessions. So we can see here that the imperial project 
of France was very closely connected to a zealous Catholicism. Missionaries were important in this because they helped to strengthen alliances with indigenous peoples and they ran the schools and hospitals in the colony. And in order to ensure as well as it could that New France remain purely Catholic, the crown decreed that non-Catholic colonists would be excluded. In reality, there were some Huguenots in New France, but they were supposed to convert to Catholicism before settling. New France was supposed to be a purely Catholic place. And in fact, Catholic leaders in the colony considered Protestantism a form of heresy, not even a real religion at all. They typically referred to it with the abbreviation RPR, which stands for the so-called Reformed Religion. So New France, officially very Catholic, but its Catholicism was not always so secure in reality as it was supposed to be in theory. Priests wrote that colonists were full of ambition and vanity. Missionaries noticed that indigenous people were not converting in the numbers they had hoped. And when they did convert to Christianity, it was often on the indigenous people's own terms. It was a form of Catholicism that missionaries didn't approve of. So there was a wavering of Catholicism in the colony, and that left a lot of insecurity behind. The settlers in the colony were feeling vulnerable because of this wavering of ideals, and they were feeling vulnerable for more worldly reasons too. They were having trouble attracting migrants from France. They were having trouble securing financial support from France. They were isolated for much of the year because of ice in the river and the Gulf of St. Lawrence, and they had enemies on the continent. They were worried about attacks by the English and the Dutch, whose colonies were a bit to the south, and they were especially worried about attacks by the Haudenosaunee. With these threats in mind, colonists were very anxious because they knew their entire colonial project was precarious, yet the colonial leaders did not agree about how to make it more secure. So what's the disagreement between the colonial leaders and how does that impact this particular case? One of the disagreements with the biggest impact on this case is between the governor and the bishop. The governor was the king's official representative in the colony. And as such, he tended to prioritize political and economic interests. The bishop was appointed by the Pope in Rome, not by the king in France. And he tended to prioritize spiritual matters. Once in a while, their concerns overlapped. For example, colonists were trading liquor illegally with indigenous people, and this often caused great harm to indigenous communities. The governor tended to tolerate it because it generated a lot of profit. The bishop strongly opposed it because it interfered with conversions. Some of the disagreements between bishop and governor simmered through their daily activities, too, because they squabbled about a lot of things. They squabbled about where their benches should be placed in church. They squabbled about who should kneel on which cushion. They squabbled about who should be saluted first by school children. And I suspect that these squabbles seem petty to modern people. But public acknowledgement of precedence mattered a lot to 17th century Frenchmen, especially when their rules were not yet really well defined. These were both noblemen, both in their 30s, both recently arrived from France, both used to getting their way and now finding they can't agree on how to steer this colony back to its earlier path. Goodness me, what a revelation. Male egos have been a problem in history. <laughs> Shocking. So we have, in this case, the suggestion that Ale has been possessed by demons, her accusation of Daniel Ruil, and then, in October 1661, an execution of Daniel Ruil. This all looks quite straightforward, but scholars have suggested not and have come up with all sorts of theories about why he was executed. I was really impressed by your close reading of the records around his execution, because it hammers home the importance of going back to the original manuscripts. So can you talk through the existing theories and your analysis, which even points to the importance of looking at punctuation? As you say, 
Weed was executed in October 1661, and that much is clear. Historians have disagreed on why and how he was executed. Some say his crime was blasphemy or another religious crime, others that his crime was illegal trade in liquor. Some say Vuil was hanged, others that he was shot. And these disagreements stem from which sources the historians are privileging in their interpretation. We have several sources to choose from, but I think the one that should be given the most weight is the Journal of the Jesuits. This source was written closest in time to the event itself, and it was meant for internal use within the order. It was not intended for publication. So the source has an immediacy about it that the other sources lack. Now, this source, the Journal of the Jesuits, exists in several different editions, and these editions all feature slightly different transcriptions of the original manuscript. They do all say that Vuil was shot with a musket. And in fact, the exact wording in the source is that Vuil was hanged, or rather shot with a musket, as if the scribe were interrupting himself partway through writing the entry to make sure his account is accurate. So I think it's safe to say that Vuil was shot. But why was he shot? The different editions propose different reasons. Vuil was not the only person whose punishment was written about in this entry. There were two other people as well a second who was possibly shot, and a third who was whipped. At the conclusion of the entry is a phrase saying that the whipping was for having traded liquor with the natives. And at the side of the entry is some writing in the margin of the book, which says executions for trading. The question for the reader of the document is whether all three people in the entry were punished for illegal trade or only the last person on the list. Now we get to the punctuation. <laughs> in one of the editions, there is a semicolon in the list, suggesting that person number three was whipped for trading liquor, but that the other two were shot for something else. A more recent edition has a full stop between person number two and person number three, suggesting even more strongly the possibility that Vuil was executed for something other than the reason given at the end of the list. An examination of the original manuscript, which is kept in the archive of the seminary in Quebec, leaves us less certain that any of the editions have it quite right. The original manuscript says that on the 7th of October, Daniel Vuil was hanged, or rather shot, semicolon. On the 11th, another person named La Violette, semicolon, and one was whipped on Monday the 10th for having traded liquor. So we see semicolons after each item in the list. It now looks very uncertain or maybe ambiguous about whether all three of these people were trading liquor or just the third person on the list. There is still that note in the margin saying that there were executions in the plural for trading. However, a close look at the handwriting of that marginal note shows that it was written not by the same person who wrote the main entry, and therefore it may not accurately reflect what the original scribe had wanted to convey. So after all of this, we're left a little uncertain about what to think. We can find an earlier entry in the same journal from eight months prior, saying that Vuil was in prison for being a relapsed heretic and a blasphemer and a profaner of sacraments. So he may have been imprisoned several times for different offences. It sounds to me like the person putting the marginalia completely got the wrong end of the stick mm -hmm. because it seems like perhaps were no executions for trading liquor out of those three. One person was whipped for it. The other two were executed for crimes not mentioned. That's right. Yeah, I think that's correct. Well, it's so interesting because, again, it's punctuation and it's handwriting and it's going back to the original. But it seems clear that he was shot and we can't go any further than that, really, in saying why. At least not yet. We have not found enough sources yet to go further. It's an extreme punishment for any crime in Canada at the time, though, isn't it? I mean, it's, an extreme, it's the most extreme punishment, of course, of, any, <laughs> of anywhere. But the death penalty wasn't imposed that often. 
No, this was an exceptionally harsh punishment for whatever his crime might have been, which leads me to suspect that the significance of his misdeeds were magnified by this ongoing conflict between bishop and governor. Vuille seems to have been caught up in the maelstrom of their dispute. And also, it does open the possibility that it is for witchcraft that he is in there that time, that it's a separate crime from the previous one, because witchcraft was punished by execution, in France at least. It could be punished by execution, yes. It was on the books as a capital offence. In New France, there had recently been another trial for witchcraft, just a few years before this one, and another man. This time, he was charged with having tied knots in a cord to cause impotence in a groom. He was found guilty of witchcraft, but he was not executed. He was banished from the town. He then moved to another town and got married. It gets murkier and murkier. <laughs> it does. Okay, let's go back to Barbe Allais then. What was going on with her? What treatment was tried on her? When Vuille was put into prison to await trial, she was brought into the hospital, the Hôtel Dieu Hospital in Quebec, on order of the bishop. And this hospital had a new room for the sick, quite a nice one, it sounds like. It had 11-foot-high ceilings and windows facing south as well as onto an interior courtyard, quite roomy beds for its patients. And yet, Barbalet was not put here. She was placed into a little room next to the parlor, accompanied by a guard and a priest and some servants. At night... She was still showing signs of being tormented by demons. During the day, she helped care for the sick. And there she encountered Catherine, or Catherine de Saint-Augustin, who gives us another model for, I suppose, having a relationship with demons at the time. <laughs> Can you tell us about this interesting woman and, and what she tells us about expressions of female spirituality? Catherine de Saint-Augustin was one of the nuns at the hospital, and she had what we might describe as a, a willingly antagonistic relationship with demons. She had come to New France eager for active service. She wanted to be something almost apostolic. She once described herself as nailed to the cross of Canada. She knew that the hospital's mission was to serve the poor and the sick, which was making an important contribution to the colony. She also saw the hospital as a place to convert any non-Catholics who came her way. So Catherine, as a nurse and a nun in the hospital, had a lot of work to do. Much of this was active, outward-facing service. She was also known for a more inward-facing life of mysticism. Catherine had many visions. Some of these visions were probably joyous or comforting. She had visions of God and visions of holding the baby Jesus, and one especially vivid vision of being breastfed by the Virgin Mary. Some of Catherine's visions were much more frightening, including visions of demons. And in these visions, she battled against the demons quite violently. At one point, she showed her confessor bruises on her arm, which were as black as ink. Even at this time, Catherine's visions were considered so remarkable that Catherine's biographer feared people might meet them with skepticism or even scorn. Back in France, theologians were becoming increasingly worried that women were not well-suited to be true visionaries. In medieval Europe, women were renowned as mystics. But by the 17th century, Leaders in the church and in medicine were worried that women's weak bodies and minds made them too susceptible to carnal desires and melancholy, which might have led women to thinking they were in touch with the divine when actually they were being easily fooled. So now there is an increasing suspicion about women claiming visions like what Catherine had. By claiming to be mystics and having this direct connection to God, these women were asserting for themselves a knowledge outside of the church hierarchy, and that was a powerful, potentially threatening claim. Catherine's biographer was very careful to assure his readers that it is perfectly reasonable to want proof for such amazing claims. Then he asks his readers to trust him and accept that perhaps there is a wider world beyond what they could perceive with their senses. How interesting that. 
at the very same time as he's asserting female power and authority, he's doing so on the basis of his <laughs> male authority. Yes, his male stamp of approval on Catherine's visions. There is a small Tudor connection, though, in this hospital, if you're interested. I am interested. I was looking through the chronicle of the hospital at the archive to find out more about Barbalet's time there. And I came across the obituary of a nun named Marie Irouin de la Conception. And when I first saw this obituary, my first thought was, Irouin does not look like a French name nor does it look like a name from any of the indigenous groups in the area. So I was a bit perplexed. I read a little later in the same source that she was the daughter of a Scottish noble who had become a refugee in France. And I thought, aha, perhaps Irouin is a French-speaking scribe's attempt to write down a Scottish name. Later, I was able to track down this family. These were the Irvins of Hilton near Aberdeen. After the Reformation in Scotland, members of this family were pursued by the Kirk Session for refusing to attend Protestant services, and then they were exiled. They settled in Dieppe in France, where Mary joined the Order of Augustinian Nuns who ran the hospital there. From Dieppe, she came to Canada. In fact, she came twice because the first time she was unable to accommodate herself to the manners of the country, as the hospital sources put it. But then she returned in 1657 and she stayed. Now here is the Tudor connection. Back in the hospital's archive, I read that Marie Irouin's family was allied to Mary Stuart, the Queen of England. And this made me even more perplexed, because in my mind, Mary Stuart was Mary Queen of Scots, not Queen of England. So I wondered at first if the nuns at the hospital simply had a bit of a murky sense of British geography, but then I sorted it out. Of course, for many Catholics in Europe, Elizabeth I, Elizabeth Tudor, was not the rightful Queen of England. Many Catholics did not recognize Henry VIII's marriage to Anne Boleyn is legitimate since they thought he was still legally married to Catherine of Aragon, and therefore they did not recognize the daughter Elizabeth as legitimate heir to the English throne. Some who opposed Elizabeth as queen instead favored the claim of her cousin, Mary Stuart, and they thought the Queen of Scots was the rightful queen of all Britain. So here we have, exactly a hundred years after the execution of Mary Stuart and thousands of miles away, an obituary from a hospital in Quebec making the claim that the Queen of Scots was the Queen of England too. It's a very long tendril of the Tudor Rose. Isn't that fascinating? Now, the extraordinary thing in this situation is it's not this holy woman in the end who eventually delivers Barbe Allais, but a very different sort of woman. Can we talk about the next stage of Allais' life and the signs of possession that she demonstrates and her eventual deliverance by an elite woman? Barbe Allais left the hospital and she went back to work as a domestic servant in the same manor house where she had been working when she first arrived in Canada. She was also still suffering from demonic torments. It was the female head of this household, a woman named Marie Renoir, who finally brought an end to Barbalet's possession. We are really lucky that Renoir has left us an account of what she did. And this account calls her actions a deliverance, a relief, and a healing. Those words make Renoir's efforts sound like a form of health care, which I suppose they were in a sense. If we look beyond the words, though, to the actions themselves, we begin to see a ritual that looks conspicuously like something else. We see a ritual that looks like an exorcism. And yet, how can you have an exorcism done by a lay woman that in the thinking at the time, that wouldn't have been possible. So how was this explained? Well, it was explained very delicately so that Renoir was performing a ritual appropriate to her status as an elite woman who was supposed to look after those under her care and to do this with the permission and assistance of Jesuit priests, both living and dead. Her account tells us, 
that on the 15th of October, 1662, between 10 and 11 at night, Barbale was sleeping when a demon came to torment her, as was the demon's custom. Marie Renoir got out of bed to help, as she was accustomed to do. That night, the demonic torment was worse than Renoir had ever seen it, and it came into her mind to bring with her a relic of a recently deceased Jesuit priest, Jean de Brébeuf. Here is how Renoir describes what happened next. She placed the bone against the side of Ale. Immediately, the demon became agitated, causing Ale to contort her arms and her legs and her whole body. The demon told Renoir to remove the bone because it burned. Renoir conjured the demon and demanded he tell her the name of the person whose bone she was using. They argued. The demon said he would not answer, and Renoir said she would not remove the relic until he did. They argued some more. Renoir said she would not remove the relic unless the demon consented to leave the girl. The demon refused, claiming the girl was his. Renoir responded forcefully, saying, You have lied, damned spirit that you are. You have nothing. She is mine. Our good God and her father and her mother gave her to me. They continued to argue. The demon continued to ask that she remove the bone because it burned. Renoir conjured the demon again, this time adding that she was using the merits of the saint whose relic she employed, and she ordered the demon to depart. Finally, her commandment worked. Renoir saw something like a breath leave from the mouth of Ale, who began to speak the names of Jesus and Mary and Joseph and make the sign of a cross on her body. The possession was over. There's so much of interest in there. Everything from the fact that by 10 to 11 p.m. they were asleep, um, but also <laughs> just how interesting it was that Marie Renoir was using her own authority as a householder to say that the girl belonged to her, and yet also drawing on the authority of this deceased Jesuit priest for the kind of spiritual right to exercise this girl without ever calling it that. Yep. She is very careful, in fact, to insist throughout that the power was not her own to deliver Ale from her demon. The power flowed through her, but was ultimately from Jean de Brébeuf. He was supposed to be the real hero of the tale. And tell us a little bit about Jean de Brébeuf so we understand why he could possibly have this role. Jean de Brébeuf was a Jesuit priest from France who had come to New France as a missionary. And he spent decades among the Wendat in what the French called their mission of Huronia. The Wendat were at war with the Haudenosaunee, and Brébeuf was captured in a raid as a prisoner of war. Then he was tortured and killed in 1649. The French settlers immediately regarded him as a martyr, someone who had been willing to die to sustain faith in the colony, and they treated his mortal remains as saints' relics. A Jesuit priest then gave one of Brébeuf's bones to Marie Renoir, and this is what she used in the deliverance. Brébeuf here is a Catholic champion of New France in the account. The account itself becomes used in the 20th century as part of the proceedings for canonizing Brébeuf. Interesting. And of course, one can assume that the terrible tortures and the terrible death that he suffered were not probably because of his French or Catholic status, but because he was allied with a different indigenous group. Yep, he was being treated in an indigenous context as prisoners of war were treated in this society. The French read his death as martyrdom, but he was also experiencing a very Iroquoian way of death for a captured male prisoner of war. So Barb is healed she is no longer possessed. What do we know about the rest of her life? And does the fact that it seems to have been relatively unremarkable tell us something in itself? I think it does. We know that after this deliverance, Barbalet went on to live a remarkably unremarkable life for a colonist in late 17th century New France. These earlier infestations seem to have left no stain on her reputation. We can trace some of her steps. She went back to the town of Quebec to work as a servant, first in the house of a merchant and next in the hospital. 
She married a man who was also working as a servant in the same hospital. They then moved to the other side of the river and settled on a farm where they raised several children. Very typical life. There were no witch hunts or mass possessions that followed, which may seem surprising after several years of such intense interest in this one case, and after all of these efforts by leaders in the colony to free Barbale from her demonic tormentors, we might expect at least a lingering concern, if not a spread of additional cases. Yet this did not happen. We need to step back from this case to consider the larger context of New France in order to explain why this was an isolated case. Yes, because it feels like it's the dog that didn't bark in the night, mm-hmm. to use the, the Sherlock Holmes expression. <laughs> you know, why are there so few witchcraft accusations and trials in New France? It, it clearly isn't because they don't believe in the supernatural. That's right. They do believe in the supernatural. They bring over the same beliefs as they had back in France. One thing that can explain the absence of witch hunts is a change in the security of the colony. New France continued to grow and prosper. The population of its settlers increased, especially after the crown started paying for the passage and dowry of young unmarried women. The king turned New France into a royal colony and took a more direct interest in its industry and its trade and its military. So, as New France became more politically and economically secure, the colonists became less anxious about threats from within and without. Studies of early modern Europe have demonstrated that anxiety often features prominently as a cause of witch hunts. It makes sense, therefore, that the growing stability of New France would calm fears of interference by witches and demons. Nonetheless, as you mentioned, the colonists themselves continued to believe in witches and demons. They were still spreading rumors and even making accusations of witchcraft. So we need an additional explanation for why there were no witch hunts or mass possessions. And that explanation could be that the leaders of the colony became largely uninterested in prosecuting allegations of witchcraft. Over in Europe, learned opinion was already shifting away from witchcraft and demons towards more natural explanations for strange events. In both France and New France, leaders in church and state continued to admit the possibility of witchcraft and demonic powers in theory, but they grew less inclined to suspect their operation in practice. Witches and demons were still swirling around in colonial imaginations, but they were no longer the object of fear they had been a few years earlier. It's all so interesting. Can I end by asking you a bit about the process of writing this book? Because here we have the story of a woman from whom we have very few, or if any, of her actual words. You say we hear more from the demon believed to be possessing her than we do from Ale herself. And I think you've done a really marvellous job of stitching Barb Ale's life together from a, this patchwork of sources. It's a really beautifully written book. I really recommend people pick it up. I'll remind you that it's called The Possession of Barb Ale. What was the experience like, especially coming from a medieval background, in resurrecting a non-elite early modern woman in this way? Coming from the experiences of researching the social history of medieval Scotland, I found the sources of 17th century New France to be actually quite abundant. For Barbale in particular, though, I faced a number of challenges. Because she could not read or write, the only thing she left us in her own hand was a mark that she made on her marriage contract in place of her signature. So you're right, it is very difficult to get at Barbalet's own perspective. My experience was one of looking at every source I could find for any information that might help me understand Ale and her world, while accepting that I probably would not come to know everything. Ale and her family were poor and humble people. They were not the elite who left us with most of the written records. But the poor and humble are worthy of our attention too. Because exceptional things happened to them, we get accounts of people's thoughts and actions that otherwise would not have been recorded. So I found that we can use this tale of very unusual happenings 
to catch glimpses of the usual everyday lives of ordinary people. To help readers understand this process, I've tried to be as transparent as I can about what we do know and what we don't know and what we think we can probably assume from indirect evidence. I hope what I've done is show how this one case of a teenage domestic servant thought to be suffering from demonic torments for a few years in a small town can actually tell us quite a lot about daily life in a colonial society and the deep anxieties of early modern North America. It absolutely does. It's a really wonderful piece of work. And I thank you so much for talking to me about it today. Thank you. Well, thank you for this opportunity. It's been a delight. History is full of extraordinary people, the Tudors being just a handful. In my latest film on History Hit, we meet Bess of Hardwick and go inside the incredible house that she built, a house that defines the elegance and grandeur of the Elizabethan age, a house fit for a woman who climbed to the top of the Tudor social ladder. To find out more about the life of Bess and many more fascinating figures from the past, sign up via the link in the description with the code TUDORS for an exclusive discount.